Perfect. Now I have your numbers. Thanks. Hey, I'm Robbie Kramer. You're listening to the Leverage Podcast, where we discuss using your social skills to hack dating, travel, finding your dream job, and becoming a complete man. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. As you know, I'm always looking for new ways to leverage your social skills and use that to influence your attraction, how you perceive to women, how to make more money, how to get ahead. And today we have a very cool guest who's extremely successful. His name is Shaheen Shaheen. No, I said that wrong. Shaheen Shayan. <laughs> Shaheen Shayan. Sorry, and he is the man behind the story, the inventor of one of the biggest designer drugs of the 90s, made over a billion dollars while at it. He's got a new all-American rags to riches book, a billion, how he became king of the thrill pill cult. And he tells a story of his wild journey, which I can't wait to hear. Uh, in the 90s, he invented herbal ecstasy, created over a billion dollars in revenue, then he went on and invented digital vaporization and was the innovator behind the vape and vaporization wave. He founded the first publicly traded vaporizer company called Vapier. And present, he's a leading Amazon and e-commerce expert and thought leader speaking to thousands on how to start predictable recurring revenue streams on the Amazon platform, which is awesome. And I can't wait to hear more about all this cool shit you've done, man. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Robbie. So tell us, like, how do you, you know, you look like a pretty young guy. Um, how old were you when you kind of got into business and what was your kind of upbringing and how'd you, did you always have like an entrepreneurial style mindset about you or tell us? Yeah, so I'm, I'm 46 now. Mm-hmm. I started as a kid. Actually, if we want to roll back. I came from Iran. I was born in Iran. And we came to this country as refugees, didn't speak a word of English, excuse me. And we moved to this country. I quickly learned that money was going to be a very important thing. And coming from the third world, you tend to not realize what a cool place America actually is until you're actually there. It's one of the few places I believe still to this day where even with very little resources and even with the most dire of circumstances, you can still do amazing things. You can achieve great achievements. And America is one of those countries where it's very rare. I think it's it's in the history of humanity the level of opportunity that we have has has never been done before. So we came here. I was a kid. I was about five years old, and you know, dropped into a school which everybody hated us because I was Persian, Iranian, and it was during Iran Contra and the whole terrorism thing. And you know, I got my ass kicked every day in school, Damn. and I realized that I was going to have to start doing something to bring myself up. So. Initially, I decided to start a little criminal enterprise in my adolescence. I'm going to drink a little water here. (laughs) And so I got together all the kids in the school that 
seemingly had something wrong with them. The outcasts, the misfits, the kids that nobody wanted to hang out with. We had a kid who was handicapped. We call them the handicapable. We had another kid who was a, a little person. Uh, we called him the midget, and he was a little Greek kid. And there was just a bunch of us. We looked like a really motley crew of uh, discontents and, and, and just bizarre people. And what we would do is we would go into the liquor stores. We would go into the little local stores, and we would create a distraction. Now, the little Greek kid was tiny and he was cute and he'd wear very baggy clothes and he'd start to take the little bottles of liquor, stuff them in his clothes, nudie magazines, whatever he could. And we created a business in the school that flourished. Now, the thing that I learned during this pivotal period for me is that while I was very good at making money and very good at, at, getting people to give me their allowances for nudie magazines, alcohol, glue, whatever it was we were selling at that time, I was really bad at crime. And the people around me were even worse than me. And I remember sitting in detention thinking to myself, fuck, man, we're in detention and I'm selling stuff to people in detention. And I'm a little kid. Yeah. How old were you? This is pretty- I was, uh, I had great grade school, man. Grade school. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just remembering to myself, man, I, we get caught every time. Is this normal? Is this normal for crime? This should not be normal for crime. I feel like I've watched so many shows and people get away with crime, but not us. And I grew up to be 15 years old and watched the world around me change dramatically. I saw big development in Los Angeles. We were in a big building boom. And LA was in a, in a period of prosperity. And my family, who was solid, poor, lower middle class, my dad worked at a pizza store and then he worked at a dry cleaners. We never bought new clothes. I never ate at a restaurant. And I remember looking around me, seeing like fancy cars and fancy houses and this little neighborhood that my folks had bought a house in had gentrified. And I remember thinking to myself, dude, I want to achieve that level of wealth. So I went to my folks and I said, hey, how do I get that? And they, they, they thought about it for a second. They laughed, kind of chuckled and said, well, you know, you have to be a doctor. It's the only way for immigrants. For, yeah, for anybody who's an immigrant, you'll know that uh, the height, the pinnacle of success for anybody who's an immigrant is to become a doctor or maybe a lawyer. That's a few steps down. And that's the highest achievement they could, they could think for their kids. And I said, all right, well, sign me up for that. I want all that stuff. And they said, well, go talk to Mr. Iruni across the street. He's doctor. He lives fabulous life. Go learn. Like, all right. So I walk next door and I see this dude and he's fucking bald and fat. And he wasn't, he, he must've been all of 40. And, you know, the wife is fat. The kids are fat. Everyone's fat in this house. And like, yeah, he's got a big house, but I'm like, Dude doesn't own that house. And I, I talked to him a little bit. He doesn't own his car. And he leaves the house at 5 a.m. He comes back at 8 p.m. Nothing wrong with hard work, but he's just slaving. And his health is, is questionable. And his family relationship is questionable. And I said, dude, I'm fucking out. Like, if that's how it is, I'm going to go chill on the beach. So I headed out. Left behind my friends, my family, everything. 
And <clears throat> excuse me. And I just left to seek my fame and fortune. I had read the books of successful people. And I thought, you know what? Like, I'm gonna go find my fame and fortune. And at this I, time, um, yeah. just to interject for a second, I um you know, I can relate a lot because I I had so many Persian friends growing up. Um I'm Jewish and Jewish parents, Persian parents, very much the same. You got to become a doctor or a lawyer, um, you know, well-respected job. You got to get all A's and you got to, you know, go out and get that job and work long hours and slave away. And it, I grew up next door to first generation uh, Armenian kids. And, you know, I, I saw this, the same sort of trend happening in the same sort of mindset um, really being pushed on all of us kind of going through grade school and middle school. And, you know, most of those guys that that sounded very similar to the upbringing you have, a lot of them did become, you know, they went on to be doctors and lawyers. And, and I look at them now and a lot of them are like terribly overweight. They don't look very happy. They're, you know, they're barely like, like you said, they're not owning their, their house or their cars. And, you know, all that promise of, becoming this certain cookie cutter thing wasn't necessarily the, the correct path. So yeah, yeah. it's uh, that, that, that had to be really tough, especially, you know, with, with the pressure and leaving. So. Yeah. They found, they found the fucking hamster wheel. They did. They, they thought they the found the prize, but mm-hmm. they just got a gold, they got a gold hamster wheel. Yep. Yeah. So from there, I, I it, the rave scene was happening in Los Angeles. And I got involved in the electronic music scene, the rave scene. I found a mentor at a community college. I was sleeping on the beach. I figured out a way to, uh, let's say, borrow abandoned buildings and be able to sleep in them at night. And I realized that I wanted to make money. I, I realized that, man, like I've been out here for a while. It's time for me to make money. And at that time, I started looking at the rave scene as what was around me as, man, there's money being made, but who's making that money? It wasn't the club promoters. It wasn't the the real estate owners. Most of the time, it was the drug dealers. So I thought, dude, that's it. Easy, fast money, big wealth. You get the fancy cars. You get the beautiful girl. You get all that stuff. Let's do that. And then I got hit in the head like with a pile of bricks metaphorically. And I remembered back to how bad I was at crime. I thought to myself, dude, like, if you repeat the mistakes of the past, you'll get what you got then. Like, you're really bad at crime. You should not be doing crime. There's people that are good at crime. Let them do crime. You should not be doing crime. And so I thought, fuck, man, but it was such a good idea. I was already like driving the car and like, I I, I had it in my mind. And it occurred to me, what if, what if I could take ecstasy, the most popular rave drug of the time, the supply had dried out and make it legal, make it natural, use herbs and sell that. Dude, I would blow up. So I managed to get myself a girlfriend. Her father was some stuffy job. He had like, he was a superintendent of some school district. And I managed to convince her to let me in through the back door as he left through the front door. And what I would do is I would cook up prototypes in her kitchen the second dude left. And we would try them on the neighborhood teenagers. 
all day I'd be cooking up prototypes and we didn't even have, I didn't have enough money to buy the machine to make capsules. So I'd be rolling up herbs by hand, trying to make them look like pills and drying them in the oven until one day we got a formula that worked, figured out how to make them look like pills. Uh, they tasted terrible. It was these goo filled things, but they fucking worked. And I got the crazy idea that I was going to walk into the club and everybody was going to love me and they were just going to buy the pills and everything would be happy thereafter. So I put them in little baggies, just like drug dealers would do. I walked into the club, walked up to the scariest drug dealer you've ever seen in your life. Tats on his face. Fucking dude was like crazy. And now remember, this is the 90s. So when we talk about tattoos on the face in the 90s, it was a thing. Now, if you have tattoos on your face, they call you Post Malone. You get a Twitter account. You get a, you know, you're platinum selling artist. Back then, you were shunned from society for having tattoos on your face. People would not let you indoors if that was the case. And this man had tattoos on his face. He was a beast of a human being. And he had the three little things on his eyes, which I think means you killed someone in prison or something. Mm-hmm. I remember walking up to him and him looking at me and going like, sorry, man, I don't have anything to sell today. You know, I'm all out. I said, no, no, I'm not a customer. Don't want to buy. I said, fuck you. Are you a cop? What are you fucking cop? I said, nope, nope, definitely not a cop. Do I look like a cop? I'm not even 16. I'm not a cop. He goes, okay, well, what the fuck do you want? And I said, hey, man, I know you're out of product. Why don't you sell this? And he's staring at me. His bodyguards are staring at me. His girlfriends are staring at me. I'm inside one of the biggest clubs, underground clubs in Los Angeles talking to one of the biggest drug dealers. And it occurred to me, Shaheen, now would be a good time for you to leave. Apologize and leave. (laughs) But I looked down at my feet, Robbie, and they were glued to the floor. I could not move them for whatever reason it was. And he said, what's this shit? And I said, I know what it is. Herbal ecstasy. Just made it up on the spot. And he Mm -hmm. said, herbal ecstasy. He said, uh, and just in that moment, Two partygoers walked up to him, cash in hand. He had nothing to sell them. And he looked at me. I was sweating bullets in front of this guy. But I wasn't moving. I was intent. My eyes locked on his. He grabbed the entire backpack. said, come back in two hours. You better not be fucking with me. Don't leave the club. He started selling the pills. This was the longest two hours of my life. I didn't know if this guy was going to kill me. I was thinking, man, I'll wash his car, shine his shoes, whatever he wants. If he doesn't kill me, how do you get a guy not to kill you? I I kept thinking about it. I was like, he must be a nice guy. I was looking at his face, trying to see if he smiled or not. This guy did not smile. Two hours goes by. I'm walking up to him, motions for me to come up to him. And I'm thinking of every excuse in the world. But I notice around him, people are dancing and having a good time. And he does not seem to be so upset. And he stares at me and he says, kid, when can you get me more? <laughs> nice. And that, that was it. It went from one guy to 10,000 guys to 100,000 guys, clubs all over the world. We were selling in, in the, the best clubs in the world, all the drug dealers selling it, all of them legitimizing their businesses, uh, opening up franchises, getting territories. And I'm still a teenager. Can I uh, ask a question real fast? Yeah. So um, I have definitely done my fair share of real ecstasy. And 
I didn't even know herbal ecstasy existed, let alone how the hell did you make it? Like that's, you know, yeah. did you have like a background in chemistry or like, it's so fascinating to me. And why have I never been offered it? I didn't start like dabbling in those sorts of things until around 2012, I'd say. Um, so, you know, yeah. That's probably <laughs> why. Yeah. The key ingredients were um, restricted, I believe in the late nineties. So uh-huh. it, was, it was probably well before your time. We're talking early to mid nineties. The product was out there in the marketplace. To answer your first question is no, I didn't have a degree in chemistry, but I had a degree in never fucking quitting. I had a de- degree <laughs> in not taking no for an answer. And that's really what I did, man. You know, I, I went out there, I got books, I read as much as I could, I talked to as many people as I could, and I learned. I, I learned through trial and error how to make something like that. I bought ingredients. I went to Chinatown. I didn't have any money. I talked people into giving me the ingredients. I talked people into, into helping me figure out how to solve this problem. And nobody told me that I couldn't do it. Now, I'm sure people said it. I just didn't fucking hear them. And at the end of the day, all that mattered was that one moment where I succeeded in what I was trying to do. It was that one moment of success that was like, you know what? I fucking did it. This works. And I know what to do from here. That's all that matters. Crazy. So you were able to just with herbs figure out a way to create that same sort of like, you know, ecstasy feeling buzz high, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's, that's, that's crazy. And so, and then, yeah, what happened? Why did the, so the, they made that illegal. Yeah. They banned the main ingredient. One of the key ingredients was ephedra Uh and that was banned, you know, somewhere, I think in the, in the nineties, they didn't allow, uh, the sale of that anymore. And, you know, look, I don't espouse anybody to take anything without talking to their doctor. Everybody who's listening to this should t- listen to their doctor. But I felt for me, it was a very safe ingredient. We never had an issue. Mm-hmm. And so I'll fast forward. I'm now, you know, late teens and I have a collection of exotic cars, Lamborghinis, Ferraris, all that stuff. I'm sleeping maybe two hours, sometimes in the factory, sometimes at my office. I have 200 employees. All of Venice Beach is employed by me. Everywhere you go, you see ecstasy shirts. We have over 30,000 retail stores carrying our product. Larry Flint is selling them at the Hustler stores, Warehouse Music, Tower Records, back in the day when people bought records at record stores, New Age bookstores, regular bookstores, Urban Outfitter, 7-Eleven, everywhere you go, our product is there. And I had fallen asleep um, in the uh, passenger area, like leaning over to the passenger area of my Lamborghini. Um, drooling on the seats, not a good look. <laughs> and I, my alarm went off. I, I, I woke up. I was like, oh, crap. All right, let me walk into my office. I stumbled into my office and everybody was pale face white. My receptionist was just scared. And I said, what the fuck's going on? And she said, well, uh, all those cars outside, all those people taking pictures, it's for you. Um, the news broke that you had 
broken a billion dollars in revenue. We had made a billion dollars pre-internet, pre-social media, pre-Facebook, pre-all that stuff. Sam Donaldson with Nightline was outside wanting to interview me. Uh, Montel Williams wanted me on his show. Uh, LA Times, New York Times. We had two Newsweek covers, People Magazine. You name it, we were in it. We were the it thing and everybody wanted me on. And I remember thinking to myself, my first thought, holy shit, I don't fucking know how much a billion dollars is. How much is a billion dollars actually? And then my second thought, Robbie, was fuck, does this mean I need to hire an accountant? And I learned very quickly, uh, and this is good for you to, to make a note of, that accountants do not like to be the guys, and they are not the guys that will count the money in duffel bags piled up in the room of your office building. That is not what accountants do. And I learned that the hard way, uh, interviewing several of them and then learning that they do not count duffel bags stuffed with cash. But that but was the, they, right there. They're supposed to count money accounting, right? <laughs> you, would, you would think so, my friend. You would think so they, so. they wear that little hat with the, uh, you know, the see-through with the brim and they got their little calculator. Right. Yeah. I, I can see why someone with an advanced degree in accounting wouldn't want to do that. But yeah. Yeah. And that was the day. And, you know, from there, I went on to inventing the, all the technology for the vapor, digital vaporization, all the vape technology that you see now was born out of technology that I developed back then. And from there, I noticed that this little guy, you might know his name, Jeff Bezos, had started this website called Amazon. And back in those days, Bezos was very accessible. You could email him, you could call him, and eventually you'd get a hold of him or someone close in his staff. We heard through the grapevine that he was opening up his third-party platform to third-party sellers to sell anything that they wanted to. So I thought, man, cool. I had designed a new product, a new supplement, a brain pill, a new tropic called Accelerol, and another one called Focus Plus. They're still available on Amazon. And I thought to myself, man, uh, it would be cool if I could sell these on there. Let me put it up. So I put it up. took 15 minutes back in those days. You didn't have to do anything. And I went to sleep. It was a $120 supplement back then, cheaper now. And I woke up to thousands of orders. That's hundreds of thousands of dollars for doing nothing. And I thought, holy shit, who the fuck is this guy? So I went and I looked a little closer and I was like, man, this is no dummy. This is not a little guy who is the Silicon Valley nerd who got lucky. This is one of the smartest guys in the room. This guy's bringing cheap money from Wall Street into Silicon Valley. And he's building the most disruptive e-commerce business ever. Since the Piggly Wiggly, nobody has disrupted retail, and he had done it. And so I decided to put all my chips in the Amazon basket, all the eggs in the Amazon basket, and I started learning how to master Amazon. And now I teach a course inspiring others to sell on the Amazon platform, make recurring revenue. Um, and I've, at this stage, coached over 105 people to start from zero and to start successful Amazon businesses that are creating these recurring revenue streams month after month. And actually, Robbie, for anybody who's watching your show or watching this show, I'll offer my one-hour course. It's normally 200 bucks for free. 
So if people reach out to me, you can just email me directly. Uh, it's D-A-R-K-Z-E-S-S at gmail.com. I get through every single email. I'll respond to you personally and sign you up. If you just mention uh, Leverage and Robbie Kramer, uh, I'll give you the one-hour course for free. And anybody else who's interested is fbasellercourse.com. And for anybody who's interested more in my story about herbal ecstasy and that wild ride, uh, my book is out now. It's called Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult. And that's available on Amazon and the audiobook dropped recently. So you can get it on Audible if anyone is interested in that. Uh, thanks for offering that to my listeners, first of all. And anyone listening to the show who's been listening, uh, or if you're a new listener, really kind of understands the power of starting a side business and like you said, leaving that the sort of, you know, golden, not even golden handcuffs, they're like bronze handcuffs. If you've got a, you know, a nine to five job of slaving away that you hate. Um, There's such a fascinating story of how, you know, (laughs) first you kind of, you were in crime as a kid and then you became like a a legal drug dealer basically. And um, you know, the, the nineties or the, the rave period like I graduated high school in 19, or 2001, and um, I remember as like a freshman in high school, all the the beautiful young girls were like going up to LA and going to raves, and um, I even had a buddy who I think went to prison for selling ecstasy first, and then he ended up selling some other shit, and um, you know that's another story, but you know, it's definitely one of the most fat, your story is one of the most fascinating I've heard (laughs) in in a really long time. Um, So I have, so the, tell me how like the, the effect on like, what was the effect on your dating life? First of all, I know you said you had a girlfriend when you originally kind of got into that first, you know, he came with the backpack, he sold it to the tattooed eye guy. Um, what did all that fame kind of do to you socially, dating wise? Like, can you tell us a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, look, I, I look at dating like sales. Dating mm-hmm. is 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 effectively sales. It's it's a big impact. It's the biggest impact you can have on dating and sales. In fact, is influence. And I always believed in pull marketing rather than push marketing. So Seth Godin, one of the great marketers, if you haven't checked out his books, definitely check out his book. He wrote a great book called Purple Cow, another one called Lynchpin. He's, he's prolific. Talks about how in marketing, how we've shifted from disruption marketing to permission marketing. If you think about it, back in the day, all we had was big soda companies being like, hey man, you want a fresh drink? You're like, no. Okay, well, I'll interrupt your show in two more minutes. In two more minutes. Hey, man, you want a drink? You want a drink? You want a drink? Until people just either freaking bought the drink or got so pissed at it, they just went off and did something else. And the way things changed with the advent of the internet and digital marketing and mobile phones and kind of the way things are now is that permission marketing became the way to approach consumers. And Amazon, as Amazon, and I'm going to get to dating about this, but as Amazon developed, we started to learn that there is a language to influence. And every marketplace where you're in, either if you're in the dating marketplace 
or if you're in the marketplace for goods, you're in the marketplace for services, each has its own language. And I know from what you've told me that you're an expert in uh, dating language and, and you and me had a brief conversation about the old school pickup artist guys who were doing that kind of stuff back in the day and how that's, how that's progressed. So I was in a unique situation. I had instant status because I was famous for a minute. And when you have that, money makes a big difference. And it's not really the quantity of money, but much more so just having access to it. Uh, as far as as far as success goes in in dating for men, and I can I can speak to men mainly. I think as far as uh, women go, for the most part with men, it's it appears that appearance tends to be the the majority factor, and that's just you know people can argue with that. They can say it's politically incorrect, but it. it it tends to be biologically accurate, in my opinion, and that's all, all I yeah, can speak I, to. I agree. As, as, as far as as far as men go, it really comes down to status, and status is really something that you can break down into one of two things: fame, and that fame can be in a microchasm. You ever seen somebody who's very famous in his own little tiny world, and you're like, "Oh, that's cute." You're like big in a really tiny place, um, or it could be general fame. But females are much more attracted to fame than money. There's a lot of famous broke guys out there, believe it or not. A lot of guys that are famous in their own little world, and a lot of guys that specialize in holding court in a very small microchasm. And by doing that, when somebody enters into their microchasm, they are influenced by their fame, pull marketing, what we're talking about. In my case, I was famous in my own small little microchasm, but I was also always on TV. I would walk into places and it's a crazy feeling when you walk into somewhere and everybody turns their head and they've seen you because you've been on, on the press and people know who you are, which led to no shortage of opportunities of females for me to date. But a real question about were they genuine? Were they interested in me or were they interested in my fame and my success and subsequently the money? And I had all different kinds of women like that in those days. So and I think a lot of women too, especially nowadays with Instagram, I, and I, I think I heard this on a Dan Blazarian interview where he said it's fame is the ultimate sort of, um, you know, attraction uh, tool. And what's even better than that is the ability to make them famous. And I was right. like, wow, that's, you know, <laughs> that's another level of fame. So if you're famous enough where you can make them famous, which is essentially, you know, if you're Dan Blazarian on Instagram and you post a tag of one of the girls are hanging with, she's going to get, you know, a few million followers from that. That's kind of the ultimate status. Um, yeah. At the time, maybe that wasn't as prolific. Yeah. When, you know, mm -hmm. Yeah. And look, I mean, I think it depends on, on what you're dating for, the reason why you're dating. If you're just looking to have fun and go out there and forge connections and just have like a, a good time, that's 
respectable. There's nothing wrong with that. And then you might be looking for a different type of partner. If you're looking to get married and have kids, if you're at that stage in your life, then that's a different thing. If you're looking to build legacy, then you got to do a lot more refinement of the tactics that you're using, where you're meeting women, why you're you're meeting a specific type of woman. And you got to put them through a test to make sure that they meet your values, which is one of the most important things, which doesn't really matter as much if you're just dating around, you're just having fun and you're 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 there to, you know, just forge human connections and have fun and just, you know, do that kind of thing. But if you if you're looking to go deeper and to have a deeper connection with someone and which there's no deeper connection than being a parent and having a child and and living that life. If the, you know, I'm a family guy now, so I don't date. I'm just a, a, a family guy. And that's been one of the most impactful, one of the most important things that I've ever done in my life. And I wouldn't give that up for anything. But when I was younger, it's a different story. And you know, I it's funny, I look at guys and I think to myself, man, like if they just knew that at the end of the day, a lot of the stuff comes down to just being authentic. A lot of it just comes down to being a real motherfucker. It comes down to you create an air of mystery about you. You create an air of status about you by just being real, by standing for something, by being a human being that's actually self-reflective. And people are attracted to that. People are attracted to others who seem to have a plan of others that have looked back on their life and been like, man, my life is pretty fucking interesting, or I've been a fucking asshole and I'm going to work on myself. And when you see people like that, they don't have to run game. They don't have to use a pickup line. They don't have to like, oh my God, do I like go out to this place at 7 p.m.? Because that's the highest volume of women and talk to them, but I'm only talking to the ones that do this and I'm going to peacock and I'm going to do this and do that. That's all bullshit. That's made to sell courses. What really matters is like, are you really a fucking interesting person? Because if you're not, you should work on that first. Right. And then everything you want comes. It's amazing. It's like money for me. I've always been really good at making money, not always good at keeping it. In recent years, I've developed this foundational system that I teach to people who are part of my Amazon course about how to diversify your money, how to put it in different areas, how to build out that Amazon business so it's creating recurring revenue without you having to sell your hours. Back in the day, I wasn't so good at doing that. That's why I made you know, over a billion dollars in, in money. And I managed to keep some of it, but not as much of it as I would like to. But at the end of the day, you, you, you really have to think strategically about everything. And it really comes down to looking back at your life and reflecting, thinking back. And, and you'll notice too, the people in your life that are the most wise, the most cogent, the most clear are the ones that have done the deepest amount of self-reflection. Mm-hmm. And women, men, everybody find that attractive. That is the key. 
if you if if I had to coach somebody on men, you want you want to go date, you want to get girls, you want to get guys, whatever it is you want to do, like I would forego all that other stuff. Like, yeah, sure, take a fucking shower and comb your hair, man. You know, <laughs> like like don't right. don't don't go don't go out looking like a bum. But outside of that, <clears throat> work on yourself. Be authentic. And what a lot of people discover is that they don't know who they are or who they think they are isn't who they are. So I tell people, find five to 10 people closest to you and go to them and say, hey, no judgment. This We don't ever have to talk about it again. I just want you to tell me what you really think about me, positives and negatives. Then you just shut up and you listen. And you might hear something that you don't want to hear, and that's good. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, because at the end of that, you net a lot more. Sure, you can learn, you know, patterns. I'm I'm a student of NLP. I'm a student of hypnosis. I've I've been doing that for years and years. And uh, language of sales and language of marketing, and we do it all the time. Our Amazon students are are amazed at how we just change a little bit of copy about how their product listing is, and boom! All of a sudden, it's gone gangbusters, and they're selling hundreds of thousands of units. But you can get into that when you're communicating with other human beings. And yeah, it could work. Some people are more easily influenced than others. But at the end of the day, it's a gimmick. It's not real. What's real is what you have in here. What's real is this person that started rough, but is becoming more and more refined in time. And that's an asset that nobody can take away from you. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to a little bit what you were saying before, um, when it comes to marketing and sales and having a quality product, like if, if you're the product as you're in, in the, in your dating life, you're the product. If, if you're not interesting, if you're a shit product, it doesn't matter how good the marketing is, how good the tactics are. You might have a few people buy you, but then you'll get returns. You'll get buyer's remorse. You, you know, you'll, it's, it's a, you need to go out and work on yourself and become a better, <laughs> a better product, a better version. Um, and so my question is if people like you had a really solid product when you started, you know, using Amazon to sell it, it sounds like, um, you know, something very unique and maybe first to the market. Um, so people that don't have that, how do they kind of get involved and how would they use, you know, your course or how, how, how does that work? If they feel like they don't have anything or maybe they have something, but they don't feel it's valuable enough. What's the kind of psychology and process there? And we teach people how to do that all the time. Our philosophy basically breaks down into finding these super niches. So there's these ultra niche products that you can get involved in. And then we even teach people to go deeper and deeper into those niches. So you identify a niche, you spy on the competition, we funnel their traffic to our products. And then what we do is we go in and we dominate that niche. We build verticals. There's all types of super cool stuff that you can do. And you are in a much stronger position if you don't already have a product idea. Because the fact is, Robbie, in the early days, what I would do is I would develop a product and I would go out there and find a market for it. And it's fucking a slog. Mm -hmm. With Herbal Ecstasy, it was kind of a hybrid. I did a little differently, and I learned very quickly that if you find the distribution, 
if you find the market and feed it what it wants, you don't have to educate the consumer anymore. You are in a far more powerful place. You're in a much stronger place than if you did it the other way around. Yeah. And it's the old rule of marketing. I think it's a find a niche, get rich. Don't find a niche. Life's a bitch. Uh, (laughs) There's a bunch of uh, sort of ridiculous rhymes like that. But I remember just starting, starting my coaching business. Our niche was literally like kind of a reaction against the, all the kind of pickup um, tactical stuff out there. There was a lot of stuff around, you know, using, different tactics, lines, NLP was big hypnosis. And we, you know, I tried all that shit. I was, I was like the, give me the magic pill. Give me the quick fix. Give me what's going to work the fastest. When I learned about this whole sort of pickup community, cause I wanted the results. Um, and I tried all that stuff and none of it really worked for me. What, what worked in the end of the day was being authentic and being real and, <laughs> yeah. and uh, working on myself. And so but that, that was doesn't sell. Of, yeah, but that doesn't, doesn't sell. That's you can't, hard. It's yeah. long. It's slow. It's difficult. It's it's you know it takes effort. But yeah, no one wants to buy that. They want to buy the, you know, how to use seven magic words to blast through female psychology and get any woman attracted to you, right? Right. Yeah, but it's you know what it is. It's it's the TikTok culture of disruption is what it is. It's buying a fucking lottery ticket is better than working for a five-year business that you can, you can realize in five years. Why? Because it's a cop-out. As uh, Chuck Palanchuk in his uh, Fight Club book says, that we were promised we were going to be gods and ro- all going to be gods and rock stars. And when they learned that that wasn't true, there were a lot of angry young men. I'm, I'm paraphrasing in, in what that book is. And by the way, the book and the film, both amazing. And it's true. We've been lied to. And so when people realize that, man, it's not like I'm not going to be on a yacht with a jacuzzi and the bikini girls and the machine guns and all that shit. They resort to buying a lottery ticket. Why? Because it's a one in a billion chance. And they can say, I've done it. So when they see that ad pop up on, on TikTok or on Instagram, and the guy's got the Lambo in the background and the girls are there in the bikini, you know, I don't mind the bikini girl and the and Lambo. It's just, you know, that's Tuesday for me. But, you know, this is how you, this is how you, you make money. Just buy my course. People buy it because it's a lottery ticket. And when they fail, they can say, yeah, you know, I tried that, but it didn't work out. They bought the dream. They bought the promise. It's much easier than doing the work. When we teach people how to make money, when we teach people how to start businesses, I tell them, you probably are going to fail. And that's okay. I want my students going out there and and trying for failure because it's the only way you're going to succeed. And I will go even further than that and say, you probably will fail. And yet there's the odd guy that will, will make it here and there by getting that winning lottery ticket. But for the most of us, you got to fucking get out there and hustle. I slept on the beach. I slept in the backseat of an abandoned car. I ate fucking top ramen. I ate hot dog uh, ketchup and relish for months and months and months just to just to survive because it didn't matter because I was willing to do whatever it takes. You have to be willing to do whatever the fuck it takes 
to succeed. And at the end of the day, it's not all black and white. It's not all I'm going to make it I'm, I'm, I, or, or I'm going to fail. It's incremental successes that lead to a much more refined and nuanced structure in your life where you have multiple streams of income like you're doing. You invest a little bit in real estate. You invest a little bit in e-commerce business. Maybe you have a job, you're consulting, and that's what's bringing in the revenue. Maybe you're driving fucking Uber. No shame in that. No shame in doing Airbnb. No shame in doing Uber, being part of the gig economy. Whatever you have to do in order to build that foundation so you come from a place of strength. And then you know, you know, maybe you contact me and we start an Amazon business for you. And then two years down the line, you're making a hundred grand a month. Your Amazon business is going great. Your real estate's going great. All this stuff. And some fucking dude looks at you and goes, oh yeah, look at that fucking guy. He got really lucky. Yeah, and you're like, <laughs> he got the lottery ticket. He got, I got that too. I went on TikTok and I saw that guy. And that's the problem. It's, it's the TikTok disruption culture where they shine shiny things. And it's easier culturally for people to buy the shiny things and pay a little bit of money and say, yeah, I tried that. Now I can quit. Right. I can go back to what I was doing or, you know, go back try to what it. I was doing. Yeah. Try it a, a year later and buy another course or buy another lottery ticket and <laughs> hope yeah. it's super easy that time. <laughs> Top up. Yeah. 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 It's, um, it, it's tough because that's what we're marketed, you know, the shiny pill or the shiny object or, you know, magic pill. Uh, but it does take obviously hard work no matter. Cause there's, there's other people that are willing to put in that hard work and that's your competition. So one last thing I wanted to ask about. So you, you said you have kids. Um, I've got a kid. I got a eight year old. Oh, amazing. And what was in terms of like dating, uh, becoming a father, what was like the, what was the process like for you when you, like, did you, when you were like, okay, I'm ready to settle down. I want to have kids. Was that like a very like clear cut sort of decision? Um, did yeah. you ever go through like a, like a player stage or, you know, how, how did the <laughs> business success and the, the relationship stuff kind of like meld together to. Yeah. So I, I was with a girl for a number of years. Um, she turned out to be a train wreck, unfortunately. And moving out of that, I decided that, hey, man, you know, um, I am now into the phase of my life, into my late 30s, um, where I want to build my legacy. And whatever females on this journey with me um, has to be similarly minded. And we have to share similar values. Um, very important uh, to me that she had good parenting, which I think makes a huge difference that she was raised right and brought up right, and that we shared shared similar values, uh, similar cultural background. I'm Iranian, so I, I'd like my kid to speak Iranian and understand our culture. Um, I think it's super important to understand where we came from. And so my criteria changed. I mean, I, I did date. Um, and I had a lot of great relationships with a lot of great women and, but none of them were quite there on all points until I met my wife. But it, for me, it was very clear what I wanted to do. I want to build legacy and I wanted, uh, to be with a woman who, uh, was of that same mind 
that we could grow together and grow a family. And that fact that she would be not only a great wife, but a great mother to our son, which is so important. You know, your mom is like probably the only person that will love you forever, no matter what. And, and, um, and yeah, and so that was really the, you know, that was really the, the factors that I, that I looked for. So you look a little bit differently as far as what you're looking for. You know, look, there's never going to be a woman that meets all of your criteria ever. Like that just doesn't, it just doesn't happen. Right. But the fact is that people grow and people change and you can, you can, compromise some things, but there's other things that are, that are not negotiable. And in, in every relationship, I mean, I'm sure my wife has compromised a lot of stuff for me, but at the end of the day, the things that are not negotiable are your core values. And so you start looking at things of like, Hey, does this person share my core values? Is this somebody that I can grow with and raise a family with? That's a very different outlook to, um, hey, you know, uh, dating around. Dating around, sure, that's fun, you know, and that's great. And there's, again, no judgment. And I know I've got buddies that are still doing that and they're 10 years older than me and they're having the time of their life. And that's fine. But what they're not doing is building legacy. Did that kind of happen for you? Like, did you get to a point where you're like, okay, I need to shift gears? And you just kind of got bored of the not doing that? Um, or was it more of like a, a smooth transition? Yeah. I mean, look, if you're dating, you've got friendship, you've got personal closeness, you've got sex, you've got um, fun, and it's kind of that, right? So yeah. if you don't really, you know, all that stuff's good, but eventually, if you're looking for more depth in your life, the main event is really having kids. And almost every female can have kids. Not every female can do it correctly um, and be a good mom, what I mean. So finding that person who you could look at and say, man, this is going to be the perfect mother for my child is a completely different level of depth than, you know, let's go out and have fun and, you know, maybe we'll have sex and maybe we'll, you know, like all that stuff is like, I mean, you know, once, once again, you've, you've kind of self-reflected, you've lived a certain amount of life, like all that stuff kind of loses its mystery, like, you know, going out on, you know, conquest or like to try to date and try to, you know, like there's, there's guys that do that kind of stuff. And it's great, but I'll tell you, every single dude I know that's just out there trying to like increase their numbers and trying to do all that stuff, at the end of the day, they really are not happy. There's no, really something not. something missing um, yeah. from from their lives. And and you know, barring young guys, so like you know, if you're in your 20s or or you know, super super young, then yeah, you should be out there having fun and not getting serious and and working on your career. But you know, first and foremost, you should focus on your career, not girls. You should focus on making money. Girls will come, all that stuff comes, you know. But you got you got to focus on your career. You got to focus on making yourself successful because the last thing you want to be is a thirty something year old dude that got laid a whole lot, but is broke as fuck. Yeah. 
That's definitely true. And when you do hit, you know, 30, 31, 32, 33, that's really when women start to notice you anyways. And, um, you know, the, the guys who are in their early twenties, mid twenties, and, and they're trying to really improve with dating. A lot of the time I tell them like, you know, you can go out and you can approach women and you can do, you know, work on yourself. And, but what's really going to make the biggest difference is getting a little bit older, getting a little bit wiser, a little bit more manly and masculine and, you know, building something. And that's when the floodgates will open in, in your thirties. And there's not a ton you can do in your like early twenties. You're better off really like focusing on building that, you know, that, that train for a woman to kind of jump onto or a wagon for her to hitch her whatever on. I don't know what that expression is, but, but yeah, I, um, I recently got engaged and I was like the, um, the quintessential had to go out and sow the wild oats. And I did that for a really long time and found it, you know, after enough like crazy casual sex and adventures, quite found it quite unfulfilling and realized I was just kind of doing it for validation mostly. Um, And yeah, it wasn't until I was about 37 that I I was like, okay, I think I need to shift my focus a bit. Um, It sounds like maybe for you, it's kind of around that same age or a little bit earlier. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, and, and look, I think every person's different. Some people work better within a relationship and some people are better to be lifetime players. Um, it's just at a certain point it gets fucking old, man. There's no, like, there's no end game to that. You know? All right. So when you're, when you're like in your forties, you can date girls maybe in like their twenties and thirties. And then, you know, then you're dating girls in their thirties and forties, then you're dating girls in their fifties. And it's like, and then a you're a 60 year old dating girls in their twenties and you're that guy. And, and you're that guy and you're yeah. that guy. But yeah, maybe you might have sex. If you have money, you, you'll get sex. Uh, not that you're, you're paying for sex, but that, you know, that status and, you know, finances can, can bring that it's, it has since the dawn of time. Right. But, uh, you know, is that what you want? Like, is that what you want? Or would you rather have a life full of family, full of love, full of, um, you know, and that's a personal choice is, is what people have to decide. Some people feel very fulfilled without that. And some people, uh, really feel like they need that. For me, I feel like that's the main event. Like that's what we're here for. And um, I, I, I really feel pretty strongly about being able to impart legacy and leave the world a little bit better than we found it. And we do that through our progeny. We do that through building legacy and inspiring other people. And you don't have to have kids. You can mentor younger people. I do that as well. But really, the the best feedback loop, I think, is really having a kid, at least one. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> seeing how that plays out, of course, it's like a the ultimate, you know, test of, of your own values and how you can influence this uh, little creature going forward. So, Shaheen, it's been uh, so awesome having you on. You dropped some incredible wisdom. Can you... Um, you know, again, tell, tell people where they can find you, where they can find your course, um, how they can, you know, get more of you. 
Yeah, sure. Guys, so subscribe to our show. It's called Hack and Grow Rich. We do a weekly show with my co-host, Bart Baggett, and we have special guests on all the time. So you can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever podcasts are found. It's called Hack and Grow Rich. You can check out my book, Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult, available on Amazon and everywhere books are found. The audiobook just dropped. If you're interested in making money on Amazon, reach out to me. D-A-R-K-Z-E-S-S at gmail.com. Mention Robbie Kramer or Leverage or go to FBASellerCourse.com. Just mention Robbie Kramer or Leverage and we will give you the $200 course for free. Awesome. Thanks so much for offering that again. And guys, like check that out, especially if you know you haven't dabbled in some other form of making money I can't even begin to describe how my life changed when I, you know, got out of my banking job that I despised and started looking for more creative and fun ways to to make a buck. So, Shaheen, thanks again for being on and it's been awesome, man. Appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening. If you want more, go to innerconfidence.com and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for the latest episodes.